This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. My name is Deborah Fitzgerald, editor of the Peninsula Pulse. And today in the Bailey's Harbor studio, we have Wisconsin Representative Joel Kitchen. Hi, Joel. Hey, how are you? I'm, I'm great. A <laughs> little hot. It's yeah. a little hot out, but it is summer. Yep. So that needs to happen. We need rain. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if you garden, but we garden and we definitely need some rain. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> but anyway, Joel is uh, represents Door County, Kewanee County, and a portion of Brown County. And he agreed to come into the studio today because there's a lot of things happening in Madison right now. Legislators are wrapping up the biennial budget for 2023 and 2025. And so what were you thinking, Joel, the end of next week? Yeah, we're going to, the Senate's going to vote on it first, I believe, and I'm not sure when people will be hearing this, but we will vote on it either Thursday or Friday of the next week. Okay, so we're recording this on Friday, June 23. So the 29th or 30th, we will pass it, and then it'll go on to the governor, and then he has, you know, he'll do his light on veto things on that. Okay. And presumably he will sign it, but he could always veto it. Sure. The whole thing. He could. Right. So how long does he have from the time that he gets it? Do you know? Is there a time frame? You know, for a normal bill, it's six days, not including Sundays. Okay. I'm thinking it's the same, but I'm not, I I should know that, but I'm not positive on that. Okay. So how many pages does this bill have? Do you know? It's a lot shorter than it used to be because, you know, with Republicans controlling the legislature and, and a Democratic governor, they don't want to give him too many words because our line out of veto power, he can take out single words and make it mean something entirely different. So they're very, very careful to keep the text to a minimum to okay. not allow that. So I'm not sure how many pages it'll be. I mean, in the past, it's been, you know, hundreds of pages, but mm-hmm. I think this one will be uh, considerably shorter. Okay. So what happens if he vetoes certain words to change the intent of the bill, then it goes back, and then what happens? No, he unless we can override it, which okay. takes a two-thirds majority, Okay, which, you know, we don't have, to, in the Senate, we have a two-thirds majority, but not in the Assembly. Okay. So, if he does a line of veto, almost certainly that's, that's stands. Okay, so then that's the end of that, the way it went to him. Right. So, what would prevent, theoretically, him from just creating a new, a new bill? Well, I mean, there are some rules on. <laughs> well, that's good to you know, hear. <laughs> and and there had been some lawsuits over that that went to the state Supreme Court where I think Tommy Thompson was the most creative, where he would even take out letters. Interesting. You know? So they did pair that back. So the would be he, things like that? Right. You, oh, wow. Yeah. So huh. it's, it is it is interesting. I don't think there's another state that has as expansive a line on veto power that Wisconsin has. Really? Yeah. I'm going to have to look into that. That's interesting. I didn't I didn't realize that. I, I just thought it was, you know, what, what everybody does. Yeah, in no, every not state. at all. And, okay. and, you know, to be honest, Democrat or governor, I would rather they not have that partial line on a veto. I would rather it just be line item. If you don't like it, take it out. Mm-hmm. But I don't like that where they can make it mean something different. Right. But, 
you know, it's it's probably not going to go away. You'd have to have the governor sign that, and that's not very likely. Okay. All right. Well, we're here because I really wanted to talk about a couple of things that have been happening. I've been reading a lot about what's going on with an education bill, which is called the Right to Read Act. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you have authored. And so your name has been popping up here and there. You chair the education committee. Right. So that came out of your committee. And it looks like, so this this act, basically, as far as I understand it, transforms how reading is taught. Is that accurate? Yeah, it is. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so it retrains teachers in a new model of teaching and develops one that is based upon phonics. Yeah, that's a, yeah. If I can give a little bit of background, absolutely. On it. So in like the 1980s, a trend was in education was called balanced literacy. And a big portion of that's called the three cueing system where students were taught, well, if you see a word you don't know, you look if there's a picture, you look at the first letter, you look at the context, and you kind of guess at what it is. And that's really not, over time, we have learned that's not a good method of teaching. And I think the the idea at the time was, oh, we'll make reading fun, and then kids are going to like to read, and they're going to read, and it's all going to be great. And, and that's what they do now. A lot of schools still do that. Okay. I, I will say, I think our schools in Door County are ahead of the curve on that. I think they have already made a lot of the, a lot of the, the changes that are in this bill. They're already doing it. Okay. So we are ahead of the curve. Okay. But what happened was when we did that, reading scores nationally just kept dropping and dropping and dropping. And, you know, Wisconsin in 1992, we were sixth in the country in reading. And now we're 28th. Wow. And our our African-American students are dead last in the country. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have really done poorly. And a lot of the states have changed this. They've gone to, I shouldn't say it's it's not all phonics. That's just one portion of it. Sure. But, you know, phonics is sounding out words and knowing the letter combinations and all that. And I'm old enough to have remembered I... That's how I learned to right. read. That's how we learned how, yeah, and, yes. and myself too. And so that's gone back to being the basis of reading, but there's more to it than that. But that works on a much higher percentage of kids than the, the balanced literacy. So the states that have done that, and Mississippi is the one that gets pointed to a lot because it's the poorest state in the country. They're, they're the poorest. We're like 38th. We have 6% African-American students. They're like 37%. And African-American students, it's more than just poverty. There are reasons that they struggle with reading more than, than white students do. So for them, with all the disadvantages they have, they are now tied with us. Mm. So they're the most dramatic. But I think most all the states that have made this change have seen positive results. So I'm confident that we will too. I was reading that some 30 states are actually switching to this other approach. And even though we're, you know, saying that it's the way that, you know, we were taught how to read, they're saying that it's really this strategy or this paradigm for teaching is, uh, reflects the best research on developing brains. Right. And so that's why it's called the science of reading. Right. So that's all contained in this act, this new approach to teaching. Right. And, and we need to know so much more now about, you know, neuroscience and all that, where they can pinpoint which parts of the brains are being stimulated and all that. So I think the research really backs it up that this is the way we should be teaching reading. Okay. So now this act would actually create a brand new department within the Department of Public Instruction, correct? Yeah. Well, yeah, it creates a, yeah, basically a department within DPI. Yeah. Okay. And so then that group or that new department would actually oversee the implementation of this this new program. Right. Okay. So I, if you like, I can go through kind of the, the main parts of the yeah. program. Yeah, let's do okay. that. So first of all, for any school that wants to change curriculum, because that's a, 
a big portion of you know how you teach. We will pay for half of that off of a, a list of recommended curricula. We'll put together a council of reading experts, and they'll come up with, these are the best curricula out there. So if they want to make that switch to one of those, we'll pay half of it. We're going to retrain the teachers. We're going to pay for that for all the teachers across the state if they haven't had that training. Because that's the problem is that the colleges have not been teaching reading properly. So some these teachers have come out and they think they're doing the right thing, but they're not. Did you say the – oh, the colleges, the, the, the education people who colleges. are edu- – I got right. it. Okay. So we will provide the funding to retrain all of the teachers. And then we'll provide 64 coaches, reading coaches around the state. Half of those will be deployed to the lowest performing schools. And then the other half will, it'll be if districts apply for them. And we'll pay for half of those coaches for the district. Okay. And then the other portion of it is that the screenings, we're going to increase that. And this is not, people shouldn't think like standardized tests. These are just screenings that take place within the lessons, probably takes 10 minutes. But we will do those like three times a year from starting kindergarten through third grade. So if we catch a kid that's behind, then they do further testing to find out, okay, exactly what is the problem. And then they come up with a plan for that kid. Okay. So for, and then for kids that reach third grade, and third grade is, that's the critical point. Research shows that kids that aren't reading at grade level in third grade, two-thirds of them will end up in prison or on welfare. I and mean, just to stop you there, for okay. with that particular statistic, I was reading something that was quite alarming, but... That was the number of only one-third of Wisconsin's third graders were proficient in reading on the most recent Wisconsin forward exam. One-third. Right. It's, you shouldn't equate 100% grade level with proficient. You know, that it's not quite the same thing. Okay, so but it's it, not as alarming as it, it sounds? It, no, I think, it, I think that's not quite as alarming as it sounds, but it's okay. still bad. It's it, still really bad. It sounds really bad. <laughs> yeah, it, so. it, yeah, it's not quite it, – I wouldn't say that only a third are at grade level, but nonetheless, okay. it's, it is bad. So okay. anyway, any kids, though, that reach third grade and they are not at grade level, they'll be put on a plan. And they're gonna. And it's gonna be intensive instruction. They're gonna have mandatory summer instruction, which doesn't necessarily mean they're going to school, but they will at least be working with teachers during the summer. And they stay on that plan until they're caught back up. If that takes three or four years to get back to where they should be, so be it. And when they do get back to that point, the parents have to sign off and say, "Yep, my kid's good. We don't need any further services." Okay. So it's a pretty intensive program, but there's nothing in the world in education more important than reading. I mean. You know, the old cliche about it is, you know, in the first three years of school, you learn to read. And then after that, you read to learn. Mm. So if you can't, if you can't read, your chances of succeeding in school become very low. So the aim then is to increase literacy scores. And well, the ultimate goal is to assure that all of our third graders by third grade are able to read proficiently. So now this bill was held back a little bit. I understand that there was some negotiation. I guess it was on the point of where, what happens if a third grader is not proficient in reading, then that third grader originally would have been held back, correct? Yeah. So what happens now? I know that that was negotiated with the governor's office, correct? Well, with DPI, the governor, you know, I met with the governor early on on this, and he said, you know, negotiate this with DPI. I support the overall goal. But so this is really unusual. I don't think there's been anything like this since I've been in the legislature where we really work together with the department. We, we both sort of have the same goal, but to come up with a, a bill like this, it's been really complicated, really difficult, because even though we both want the same end product, there are a lot of different nuances along the way. And the retention piece was a big one, because 
there are a lot of people that just say, hey, if, if they can't read in third grade, why, are, why aren't we just holding them back, you know? Mm -hmm. And simplistically, that sounds right. But the reality is there are a lot of kids that are good students and they're smart kids. I have dozens of stories of kids that they couldn't read early on, but they end up going to Ivy League schools and stuff. It's just reading doesn't click for every kid the same way. So to hold them back and make them repeat all those other classes and take them away from their social group and all of that is really difficult on that kid. And a lot of them will give up on school. They'll hate school. So in general, that's not really the best way. If you're going to do that, you have to provide a lot more services to catch them up. But just repeating, because you hear these kids that, like, they're great in math, but they just can't read very well. Mm. So you're going to teach them math over again? Sure. You know, that doesn't make sense. So, so instead, we're doing this program where they get their individualized plan. If the school deems that they can, they move forward with their class, but they're still getting intensive instruction to catch them up in reading. Okay. Now, if they're, I mean, if they're really having trouble in everything, you know, if they have a cognitive, cognitive disability or whatever, then that's a different ballgame. But for the kids that just struggle with reading but are, you know, good on other things, that's what, that's what we're doing. Okay. So that was the big stumbling block. It came down to the morning before we passed it where we finally got agreement between, you know, leadership in my caucus and, the, and DPI and all that on that. It was really that one piece that was holding it up. Okay. Now, so you authored this bill, correct? Right. So that was in there to begin with, holding the kid back. But now you're talking as if, you know, it really is the best thing not to have that in there. So is that what we're seeing about compromise and action when you're trying to compromise to get the bigger part of the bill forward, yeah. the main part of it? Yeah, it definitely is. And you know, honestly, I never really wanted that retention piece, but there mm. were people that insisted on it. That, you know, we're not going to let this move if you don't put that in there. Over time, I think they learned more. DPI gave in a little bit and, and all that. And in the end, I, I think the bill turned out really the way it should have been all along. I, I'm very happy with how it turned out. You know, there's some uh, groups out there that are still opposing it. I think they don't really understand the changes we made. You know, I just saw a letter this morning from League of Women Voters that they sent out opposing the bill, and they said, well, we don't like this retention stuff. That was the big thing. It's like, that's not even in there. Oh, you okay. Know? So they're just catching up to it. Yeah, sure. you know, th yeah. so they, they, you know, so it was unfortunate sort of that we had that word in there. And it's really the word almost. It, in a lot of ways, it wasn't, you know, we talked about just retaining them in third grade reading mm. and letting them go forward. But that still had those negative connotations amongst educators. So anyway, we worked it out. It doesn't say retention now. It just says an individualized plan. Okay. So in it, and that does not include retention, or, or maybe in some cases it would, but at least it's not now. It's in not the mandatory. So right. it's up to all districts have their own retention policy. And okay. so they can still hold kids back if they think that's the most important or best thing to do. So this bill passed the assembly on the 21st, which is just a couple of days ago, right? right. So that was 67 to 27, the vote. So you actually got, it's kind of bipartisan. Yeah. I mean, that would be, a you know, kind of the definition of bipartisan. It is. And to be honest, I think the Democrats that voted against it, I know the ranking Democratic member of the Education Committee, which I chair, she voted against it. And I think she was a little angry that we didn't include her in the in the negotiations. But mm. I mean, the problem was, again, the governor asked me to negotiate with DPI. And I had other people I had to get, like the education chairman in the Senate, I had to have him in. So there's a, a smaller number of people, but it's really, really hard just to get that little number on the same page. It took up till the very last minute. If I'd had one more person in there, I just don't think it would have happened. So I think when she sits back and looks at it objectively, she's going to say, yeah, this is a good bill. Okay. So, and I would imagine there's always the danger too, that is it mostly staffers and policy people that are in, in that room 
trying to hammer out the bill or is it politicians as well, like yourself? It was it was the politicians. We had mostly, okay. mostly it was. Mostly we, politicians. Yeah, okay, we so had our staff with us and sometimes, you know, there was one meeting actually that was just staff meeting with DPI, but it was mostly, you know, the there were like, you know, maybe five of us, you know, that are in the legislature, you know, both Senate and, and Assembly and then you know, DPI was really how we did it. Okay. Were there any Democrats in that room or no, was I did all not. Republicans? Yeah. Okay. No, and again, that goes back. That's why some of them are a little, they're not happy about that, that they sure. wanted to be there. But again, it, it's just such a complicated bill. And everybody, I mean, even as it came down to the last minute, so many people, they'd speak and they'd say, well, I like this bill, but if you would just change this thing and this thing, mm-hmm. it's like every single person had a, a list like that. I had a list of 50 or 100 things that mm-hmm. everybody wanted to change. And some of them were contradictory. So, you, you know, it, it was a really hard bill. It's the I think this is the most important bill I've ever worked on, but I also think it was the most difficult. Okay. And I imagine you have to consider the optics as well. So if you're inviting Democrats to the table on something like this, when you leave the room and go talk to reporters, you have a clearer understanding of what's going to be said by right. all of those politicians. Right. I, I just... You know, I, I and people that aren't involved. Still, in it would have been better if you had Democrats <laughs> as well. I well, mean, you know, to, to, to truly craft a bipartisan. Well, I, I mean, I'm perfectly serious. I do not believe we'd have ever gotten it done if I'd had them. Really? I just okay. think that it was that complicated. And DPI is, you know, I mean, you know, the secretary, she's a, a Democrat. Sure. She's, she's who the governor wanted to, to negotiate. So, you know, it's not like we weren't, you know, taking their side into account and actually you know, ideally, they would talk to the DPI. If they had concerns, talk to the DPI, and then they can negotiate it. Mm-hmm. But you just, it, you know, it, it just would have been really impossible, I think, to get done if I made the circle any bigger. Okay. And I, and I did notice that at the last minute, there were things that were being said by DPI. You know, we don't agree with this version of it, even after you had hammered out a bunch of things. So it really was coming down to right. the 11th hour. Yeah, it was that morning. And then the secretary said... You know, and, and she made some calls and made sure she had other people, you know, the school board association, the administrators on board. And then she did issue a statement, you know, once we passed it, that was strongly supportive and said it's a, you know, huge step forward and all that. Okay. So, you know, we finally got there, but it was not easy. <laughs> Senate vote on this? Yeah, they'll, they're going to vote it out of committee on Tuesday, I believe. And I think that they will probably vote on it. At the same time, they vote on the budget. So that'll be Wednesday or Thursday, probably. Okay. So any fear that this bill would not arise from the Senate? Well, there's always fear because, you know, we've along the way, there have been things that have popped up that somebody didn't realize was in there. I feel really good about it. The education chair in the Senate is a co-author. And, and again, he's holding the executive session on it to vote it out of committee. So he's very supportive. And also, Dewey Strobel is my main senator in the you know, in the Senate on there. Okay. And, he, and he's very widely respected, very conservative. So that helps with, with the people that might be, you know, skeptical about it. I mean, we're spending, the governor initially had asked for $20 million for literacy. We put in 50. I saw that. So it's a big investment. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you have a guy like Dewey Strobel, who is easily one of the most fiscally conservative legislators. And, and he, you know, when we jumped up, at first we were talking 15 and we jumped up to 50 and he didn't bat an eye. It's like, that's how important he thinks it is. Well, congratulations on that. And maybe it will get through. I did want to just touch a little bit on if this were uh, similar to a reading readiness bill that you had tried to get through in 2021. Is this similar to to this big bill that you just... That bill really dealt with only one portion, which was the early screenings to catch kids early. Okay. 
And it was always intended to be just a first step. But, you know, it didn't provide the funding for how we follow up with it and all that. So, you know, and I don't think at that time, you know, this has been an evolving thing. I don't think the governor was that supportive of doing any of this at that point. First off, I think he got beaten up in the election about it politically. But also, he put together a task force about that time, and they came back and said, this is what you have to do. Mm. So this session, when I first came in, it's like, I don't know if I want to even bring this forward if it's just going to get vetoed. Right, because that's what happened last time, just to to be clear. Right, to put a lot of effort into something just to get vetoed. It's like, yeah, you might score political points, but I I, Mm. I don't want to waste my time on that. Mm -hmm. But then when I came back and talked to him and to DPI, and they were all of a sudden – yeah, we want to get this done. Then I said, okay, we'll do it. Okay. So I'm confident, especially having the the DPI secretary be strongly supportive. I'm very confident if we get it through, he will sign it. All right. The other one that I wanted to talk about is the birth control bill. Yeah. And that's another one that you have authored. It did pass the assembly 82 to 11. So this is definitely more partisan, but I mean, it's bipartisan and then we got 82 votes, but only Republicans voted against it. And so basically this increases access to hormonal contraception. And I had to look that up because I wasn't quite sure what that meant, but it means to block the release of eggs from their ovaries, basically. And right now it's only available via prescription. Right. Okay. And so this bill would allow women to access it on their pharmacy shelves. Right. The way it works is that, and to give a little history, you know, you go back to nineteen early 1960s when the birth control bill came out, pill came out, it had, a, had really high hormone levels. You know, doctors didn't really know what to make of it. You know, what are the side effects going to be? Well, over, you know, all these years, it's, it's gotten much, much safer. And at this point, it really shouldn't be a prescription drug. Pretty much the entire medical community, you know, the American Medical Association, the OBGYNs, they say birth control pills should be over the counter. They are in, it's over 100 countries where that's the case. But we can't do that. The FDA has to make that determination. And there is some movement in that direction. I think they're finally going to look at that. But that would be the preferred, you know, method. But we can't do that. We So what this bill does is if a woman wants to purchase that, instead of having to go through a doctor, which creates all sorts of barriers and it causes a lot of unplanned pregnancy because, you know, women run out or they don't have a doctor. Anyway, instead they would go to a pharmacist. The pharmacist gives them a questionnaire. And if there are any red flags on that, you know, then, then they say, oh, you have to see a doctor before we can give it to you. And they also take their blood pressure because blood clots are the biggest risk factor. And if you check the blood pressure, that screens for a lot of that. Okay. So any red flags, then they could just sell it to them. All right. And because it's estrogen, progesterone? Right. Those are the two hormones right. that go in contraception pills. Mm-hmm. So that's why you always have to get a prescription for them because yeah. to regulate the, the hormone Well, levels. yeah. Again, it's really kind of archaic that at this point, women still have to go to a physician for that because, again, the medical community will tell you at this point, you know, the birth control pills are as safe as ibuprofen. You know, yeah. I mean, there's some risk to it, certainly. And I'm sure everybody knows somebody that had some trouble. But especially if you do the screeners, the risk is very, very low. And certainly the risk of unplanned pregnancy is much, much higher you know, to, to a woman's health mm. than, than being on the pill. Okay. So I guess that's what makes this a little bit more surprising that it did pass the assembly with 82, you mm-hmm. know, yes votes. Now you have, you authored this bill and you've brought it to the assembly a couple of times, right. a couple of years in a row. And both times it either didn't get a vote in the Senate or it didn't get voted yeah, in the Senate. It's, yeah, we've passed it twice now out of the assembly, but mm-hmm. so far we haven't been able to get it through the Senate. 
it's going to be very close. The opposition to it comes from, you know, to be honest, very socially conservative people that just frankly don't like birth control. Mm. And so that's really, you know, the only medical group that's opposed to it is the Catholic physicians. So, you know, it's, it's entirely moral. Now they'll throw out other things and say, oh, it's not as safe as you say. It, it doesn't work as well as you say. But I think that's just, it's kind of, in my opinion, you know, baloney. If you really look at all of it, you can debunk any of that. And every other medical group says that this is safe. They all support this. Hmm. Now, the Democrats who have supported it are indicating this is a breadcrumb, considering, you know, that abortion is still illegal in, in this state. And but this will definitely help to prevent women from needing an abortion. And that seems to be what why Republicans also got behind this. Is that your perception? Well, certainly that's part of it that I think um, if you look at the states that have done it and you know, when I first introduced this four years ago, there were 12 states that had, ta- you know, done gone this route. Now it's up to 28, and there are six more looking at it right now. So it's really gained momentum. But, yeah, I think – anyway, I got off track a little bit. But when you look at the states that have passed it, and Oregon was the first, it did lower unplanned pregnancies and it lowered abortions. You know, it's, it's over 40% of unplanned pregnancies and an abortion. And it, it overwhelmingly affects women in poverty. So – of the ones of the babies that are born through unplanned pregnancies, sixty-eight percent are paid for by Medicaid, and then when you look at the effect on the women that they drop out of school, their careers are interrupted. The long-term impact on you know generational poverty is huge. It's a huge cost to society. So I think when you look at that, I think it really is important that we that we do this. And so, do you think those costs are going to start increasing? And and is there any faction that is actually adding up those costs because now women cannot get abortions? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I, I I guess time will tell. I mean, there's still, Mm -hmm. you know, abortions are still legal in an awful lot of places. So Mm -hmm. I don't know how many, you know, how that will affect. Okay. So what are you thinking about the chances of this bill? Getting out of the Senate this time. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be really close. And the, the problem is that the general policy is that in the Senate, there are 33 members. I think it's 23 Republicans. But they won't bring it to the floor unless they have 17 Republican votes, even though they would get all the Democratic votes. So I need 17 Republican votes. So that means I can't I can only lose if it's 23, then I can only lose obviously six. So that's the challenge. And in in the like last time, I think I was within one vote of having that 17. Mm. So, you know, I'm hopeful, but there are just some people that are that are dug in that they're just they really are opposed to birth control. And nothing I say is going to change that. Okay. well, so if this if this passes, this will be part of the budget bill. Is that? No, this is separate. This is just separate. Because there's no appropriation for it. Okay. So will Evers, do you think he'll sign it? Oh, he would sign it. Okay. Okay. I mean, I I think unanimously Democrats have supported it. Yeah. And they've, you know, even though, again, you, you know, it's not everything they would like it to be. Right. They overwhelmingly support this. Sure. I think they'll take anything they can get, you know, at this point, that's probably it. Yeah. It really is a big deal. You know, again, you look at these states and- you know, honestly, abortions have gone down in our country over the last 20 years or so. And yes. when, you, when you study that, it's because of increased access to birth control. Because it's still that, that number of 40% of unplanned pregnancies and, and an abortion. That hasn't changed. It's just we now have less unplanned pregnancies. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring... 
For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. So now switching to the budget a little bit, which you say next week, and we're recording this again on June 23rd, but back in March when the governor introduced his capital budget, there were several things in there that would have benefited Door County. I guess the two that, you know, we were looking at closely was Peninsula Players for the dormitories that they are constructing. They were requested, a million dollars was in that budget. Has that survived yeah. Well, what Joint Finance Committee decided to do this time on these very local issues like that, in the past, you know, they pick and choose, which really, it's not honestly a great way to do it because a lot of times it's political favors and that kind of thing. So they just decided, rather than do this and pick all the winners and losers, they're just going to set aside an amount of money, and I don't recall what exactly it was. And then ev- everyone on that list, they're, they're going to apply for those grants, and, and they'll be more decided on merit rather than sort of politics, I guess. So I know it's disappointing like to, to Brian Kelsey at Peninsula Players because he thought he was going to get an answer. And it's like, no, now it gets put off and you have to apply again. And we don't know exactly what that process is yet. Okay, But that's so, how it's going to work. It's not dead. And he has actually, they have lowered the amount requested. I think they're, they lowered it twice. I think they're at 400 some thousand now. So it's really not that much. So I'm, I'm hopeful they'll be able to get that and I'll help however I can. Okay. So it's going to be a new grant program that comes right. out of this budget then. Right. And I believe that a lot of those projects, he had earmarked to be paid for with cash. So this is an appropriation, a separate appropriation for this new grant program. Right. Sounds like it might have very wide parameters in terms of the types of groups that could apply for the money because they were all all across the board, oh, yeah. all the different programs. Right. So is that the case with this? Yeah, yeah. And again, I don't, they haven't really put out yet how exactly it's going to work. Okay. So I'm, I'm watching it closely. Okay. So Potawatomi, yeah. we know yeah. that <laughs> $6 million was in for that. Right. And I think the last time I did a story on this, it was probably about three weeks ago, I want to say. And the DNR had retained the wood expert that the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society Foundation had hired, Dan Tingley. So he and his crew, well, he wasn't. He had selected, you know, his crew to come back up there and to reassess the tower. So that's the last time I did a story on that. But I don't, I know that $500,000 survived for Pottawatomie State Park. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the thinking on that is, and it was Senator Jacques and I both put in a, a budget amendment asking for that amount. Okay. We know they can fix it for that amount. The $6 million to put in the helical ramp all around it and everything. I mean, that's just an unrealistic proposal. I know almost nobody in Door County that wants that. Right. And when you look at, I think it's what, 15 of the similar towers around the state, we're not going to spend $6 million on every one of them putting up a, a ramp. So let's just fix it. You know, it's on both the state and national historic registry. It was the first tower built for tourism. And, you know, there's no legal requirement that it has to be made ADA accessible. We're just talking about repairing it. And so we put it in there. And, I, you know, it's going to be up to the governor now at this point. We, The ball's in his court. We gave him the money to fix it. 
if he wants to tear it down, he's going to have to take responsibility for that. Okay. So there's 500,000 in there then. And I did talk with Dan Tangley in, in just a few weeks ago. And so, and he firmly believed that it would still be less than $500,000, even, you know, though time has passed since they yeah. did their last assessment. Right. And you know, money's really not the issue here because if they You've kind of said that all along. Yeah. If they tear it down, there's a cost to that. And they always said, well, if we tear it down, we'll build a small tower somewhere in the park anyway. So when, when you add that up, they're going to spend 500000 anyway. Mm. You know, So just fix the tower. That's what everybody wants. It can mm-hmm. be fixed. I mean, the polls that have been done, I think Door County Daily News did a poll. Historical Society, Sturgeon Bay Historical Society did one. It's like 80 or 90% of people say, just fix the tower. Yeah. The Department of Natural Resources did one, too. Yeah, surveys. but they, they didn't include just fixing it. It's like No, you, no, the first <laughs> one they did. But yes, you're right. The second one, definitely not. Yeah, it said, do you want a helical tower or do you want a, right, <laughs> right, right. a long one that winds through the woods? Exactly. So, <laughs> so that was in their first one. It did, and people overwhelmingly said that, you know, they wanted it fixed. So, yeah. But they had already registered their support through letters and resolutions. That didn't change. The County of right. Door, the City of Sturgeon Bay, the Town of Nassawapi, all of these organizations, the Door County Historical Society. So it, it it's been their wish for a couple of years now. This is not new. Yeah. I've kind of kiddingly told the DNR that, I should thank them. They found an issue that could bring Republicans and Democrats together in Door County. Cause, <laughs> cause, you know, well, that is true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody just wants them to fix it. And right. I think we're all supportive of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Any new structure, you know, should be made that way. But when you have a historic structure that it's either do this or tear it down because the helical ramp, it irritates me that they spent money doing that and getting the plan and all the of the stuff place. they went through when there was not a chance in the world that was ever going to happen. Mm-hmm. So they've wasted thousands and thousands of dollars doing this stuff. Yeah. And it's all political just so that the governor can say, oh, it's not my fault. They they decided they wanted to tear it down. They wouldn't give me the money, you know. And if they really wanted to find out if a tower like this could be repaired, all they need to do is take the ferry over to Washington Island. Right. Because Dan Tingley's group has finished fixing, repairing that tower in a very similar way to what they had anticipated for Pottawatomie State Park Tower. Right. That was done for about $150,000, and it's done, ready to go. I mean, in less time, or I think it was a year and a half from start to finish before, you know, they had that repaired. Yeah. And the town owns it. The town did a survey, I mean, had a referendum, you know, asking if people wanted to, you know, allow the town to borrow some funds or it wasn't a referendum. It was just a, a meeting and the town electors decided that, yes, we wanted to fix the tower. Yeah. Yeah. So all they would have to do is take the ferry over there and see. Well, we should send the governor over there, I guess. Yeah, okay. but, um, <laughs> but it's this is, it's been kind of an unbelievable thing. It's sort of politics at its worst, in my opinion, you know, again, wasting yeah. money doing studies that everybody knows are never going to come to fruition. Yeah, I got to see that firsthand over the past three years, and it can really, really diminish your confidence in how how laws are made and and in how legislation, you know, how legislating happens. Yeah, and I really appreciate your coverage on it, because I think you have, you know, it's pretty clear the truth on this, what's happening. And and so you kind of called them out on their bluffs a lot of Mm -hmm. along the way. So I do appreciate that. Well, Joel, we're coming uh, close to the end of time here, our our time here, not to the end of all time. (laughs) Thank goodness. Anything else you wanted to talk about? Uh, No, I mean, you can throw something out there and I'm happy to answer it, but nothing right off the top of my head that I feel like I have to promote. I mean, the the reading bill and the 
and the birth control bill were two, you know, those are two big bills of my bills that were both on the floor on the same day. Mm-hmm. So it's been a lot. And, you know, now I, I have a list of, you know, several other things I, I want to work on, but now I can get to work on those. Okay. The one thing that comes up a lot lately that I've been covering a lot lately are the different strategies that local municipalities are using for short-term rentals. Mm. And in trying to regulate that, trying to slow the pace of their growth, I just listened to a two-hour conversation with the Village of Egg Harbor Plan Commission yesterday, uh, Tuesday, and so they're looking, you know, at it. Uh, Sister Bay just passed a stricter ordinance. Sevastopol passed one a couple mm-hmm. of months ago. So now the village is looking at it. And they're all kind of looking at the same thing, which is, you know, really trying to restrict future growth while trying to protect those that, you know, are in business right now. But what comes up time and time again is their inability to do anything by zoning district. I think that the village of Egg Harbor is going to, well, what they're talking about is putting in regulations similar to like a noise ordinance that might apply for a downtown area or a certain zoning district without actually prohibiting them, but putting different regulations. Why does this never come up in front of the state legislature? It can't just be, well, I know it's not. It's not just Door County that's dealing with the rise of STRs, you know, across the state. Why does this never rise to the level of attention at, you know, in the Assembly or Senate? Yeah, I I think the big thing is, first off, and this does come up, this issue is obviously a hot issue in in the county. When it comes up with my colleagues, first off, at least half of them, you say SDR, they don't know what you're talking about. So <laughs> We are talking about short-term <laughs> rental, just in case anybody doesn't know that here. Yes. Right, yeah. But so in a big portion of the state, they just don't see this as a problem. And huh. in fact, in a lot of places, they see it, it's a good thing. It's like, hey, it's bringing tourists to our area. Why, why do you have a problem with that? Hmm. So that's the problem is like, and you've got interest groups like the realtors that are hard against it. So when you have an issue that most people don't care about and you have interest groups that are really going to lobby hard against it, it's pretty hard to make a change. I think it is growing the momentum on it that I know Brown County now is they're looking at things and a lot of people are looking to Door County because Door County has been at the forefront of this. I think more than any other place in the state, we have recognized the problem early and seen you know what it can cause. Mm-hmm. So I think as more and more communities realize this is a problem. And I am hearing, I, I have several of my colleagues, like down by Racine, somebody called me, uh, Sheboygan, they've called me. So it's getting to be where, the, in Kiwani County now is starting to look at it too. They're starting to see just the beginnings of, geez, it's hard to, you know, get affordable housing. You know, that's the big thing that, sure. know, that we hear. But anyway, so as that momentum picks up, I think it'll be easier to to do something about it. And I'm looking into seeing what can be done, if we can nibble at it a little bit. And I've had, you know, I've been criticized. People say, well, why don't you just bring up a bill and allow us to do that? And it's like, well, because I know at this point it's impossible. And I don't want to, you know, I have a lot of goals, things I want to get done. And to to spend a whole lot of political capital and time on something that at this point would be impossible. You know, I'm going to continue to look at it. And I, you know, the, the legislator that actually put that in, snuck it into the budget where we removed their ability to zone, that happened several years ago, but you know, I've been talking to him a little bit. And it's like, eh, are you are you having second thoughts about it? Because he's a pretty powerful member, and you know, so I I am working on it. It's not like I I don't think this is a problem, but it's just it's really tough right now to get anything done on the state level. And I do appreciate that these communities there are a lot of tools they can use. The length of stay, the as you said, noise noise ordinance. 
you know, the septic systems, you shouldn't be able to have 25 people in a house that was built for four people, you know, so those kinds of things. I think there are a lot of ways, you know, if communities choose to, that they can restrict them. Well, the big one that they're using up here, I mean, Sevastopol is definitely the most restrictive, I would say. Well, it depends on who you talk to. Some STRs say that if you restrict, if you use the 180 days and limit it to the 180 days that the statute allows, mm-hmm. then that is more destructive than limiting it to once every seven days being able to rent it. So yeah. there are kind of two different, but those are the most restrictive and those are the ones that are being deployed by communities up here or at least being looked at. And I've also heard that the Wisconsin Realtors Association is gearing up for some lawsuits, even against some of the owner-occupied language that is going into some of these ordinances, which requires the owner to be on site in order to rent the property. So I hear that that is happening. So if, you know, that lobby is as as strong as as you say, and as, as I also hear it is, then that means that something that most people don't think is a problem is going to be up against this massive lobby, which will make it even more difficult. Right. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that. I mean, there are two sides to it. I hear from, from both sides that, you know, they think the, you know, that want to make the, to lessen the restrictions and all that. And then you hear, you know, so it's a, it's a controversial issue for sure. It is. And at least, you know, like in the village of Egg Harbor, they had all, you know, the STRs at the table, home host, which represents, you know, more than I think 500. So they had these people at the table so that they're doing it together. And it's, you know, way beyond not having good neighbors. It's what the argument, you know, to try and restrict them is that it's destroying the fabrics of neighborhoods. You know, they're no longer neighborhoods. They're just maybe a couple people who live there. So anyway, this is an ongoing thing. Joel, I think that we'll we'll end it there unless you have something else that you wanted to talk about. I'm sure we could talk a lot longer, but sounds good. Okay, well, thanks so much for coming in today. You were uh, listening to Joel Kitchens, who's the state representative in the Wisconsin Assembly for Door County, Kewanee County, and a little bit of Brown County. And you're listening to him on the Door County Pulse podcast. Until next time, thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.